Well, friends, for most of us, as we've seen this week, Christmas is a season of vast dichotomies. The mall, of course, beckons to us. This is the season of shop till you drop and the doors are open at midnight, right, for door busters or whatever it may be. This is the season where many of us find loved ones we don't typically get to see that come home from college or from other places and they join us at our tables. This is a season of festivity and happiness for many. And this is also a season where perhaps some of the sorrow and the grief and the agony of life is more acute. We wonder if we're really supposed to feel as giddy and happy as it appears everybody does on a commercial on TV. I think Charlie Brown said it best in the opening lines of his Christmas special. He says, I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Last Saturday night at our house, we made two giant bowls of popcorn and lined everybody up on the couch to watch a Christmas movie. And as I looked over and saw the glow of the tree and my great family sitting with me, I was also reminded of all the folks I've lost over the years, the friendships that are no more, the family members who will not be at the table this year. And I was in that moment caught in the tension of it all. This is a season where we long for relationships to be made right, and we wonder at times if that can really happen. It's a season where we compare and contrast ourselves to others. If I flip on the television and I see Rachel Ray or some other celebrity from the Food Network cooking up a storm, I wonder how it's going to go down at my house and whether or not I'll be able to achieve the same thing. And I watch these iconic families from throughout television history have their family meals together that are not, of course, real. And I wonder what it would have been like to be a Brady or a Cunningham or a Hugstable or the Andersons or whomever it is, the Bravermans. We wonder. This is a season of a tremendous mix of experiences. And so many times the things we struggle with in this season are because doors to relationships have been closed to us. Maybe we've closed ourselves off to a relationship with God in heaven who is indeed opening the door to us in this season. Or maybe what we struggle with are the doors of relationships that have been slammed shut. Did we close them? Did somebody else close them on us? Were they abruptly slammed or over the years did they just slowly close and now we find ourselves wondering what happened? What doors have been closed to you? And what doors have you closed off to others? My hope for us this morning is to find our way toward an answer to those questions in the story of scripture, the story of Joseph. Scripture itself is filled with fractured and broken relationships. 
And if you look throughout the stories in the Bible, what you see is the mess of humanity and the opening and closing of doors and anger and deceit and treachery and rage and God's eternal call for us to make that all right. Right off the bat in Genesis 3, we read that Adam and Eve went about making decisions on their own and closed the door to God. And ever since, God has been opening the door of heaven, making it right. Joseph is a quiet, humble figure. He's a man in an incredibly difficult situation. His situation is difficult in our cultural context. We look at that and say, oh, that would be rough. If I was engaged to someone and found out that it appeared she was unfaithful, that would be rough. Joseph, in the cultural setting he found himself in, had it even worse. The custom of the day was that a betrothal was basically a prenuptial contract. It was entered into publicly, and it could only be broken by a formal process. It was the first of two formal processes. One was this betrothal. When a gal was about 12 or 13 years old, her family would arrange for a marriage for her. And then about a year later, the actual wedding would take place, and she would leave her family home and go to be with her husband. And Jewish, Greek, and Roman law all held that Joseph should reject Mary and leave her to pay for what appeared to be her infidelity. And he would get to take her dowry with him when he left. This would force her to be impoverished and basically on the streets, living in poverty for the rest of her life. And her family likely would not go back and take her back, for she would bring great shame upon them. And you can see that Joseph decides he's going to close this door quietly. He could have made a public spectacle of it. He could have had her stoned to death in public, should he choose. But it says he made the decision to divorce her quietly. Close the door. Before she closes, he closes the door, God kind of sticks his foot in there and says, uh-uh, not yet. And an angel of the Lord comes down and says to Joseph, this woman is carrying the Savior, the Messiah, and you are to name him Jesus. Do not close this door, Joseph. And Joseph responds, And he could have woken up from that dream and said, ah, maybe I ate something weird last night. And, you know, that was just an odd dream. But he responds to God's invitation to keep that door open. We read in verse 20 that after Joseph had considered these things, all the things I just laid out for you, that was when the angel appeared to him. There's a great commentator by the name of Kenneth Bailey who reflects a little bit on what this word considered means. You know, when we consider things, we might consider where we're going to brunch after church or whether or not the bears are going to beat the Packers this afternoon. We consider these sorts of things. It's as if maybe I'll consider an errand to Target. It's an extraneous sort of thing. Bailey suggests the, the, the root meaning here is anger. 
that in the New Testament, in other places, the root of this word is used to describe wrath and rage. Which makes sense. If I was him, I'd be pretty upset. And what happens is that he has anger. His family has anger. Mary's family has anger. This is an unexpected, tough situation. And he goes from anger to fear in his dream. Do not be afraid, Joseph, to grace. From anger to fear to grace in one fell swoop. My question for us today is where there are places of anger in your life. Is there a way to open the door to grace? I'm not naive enough to think that it's just that easy that we all get up after this and make a hard phone call and and call it good. But consider it. Where in your life have you held on to anger and self-righteous indignation that with a little fear and trembling, you can take and move to grace? We know what it feels like to be angry. I've met folks before who say, you know, I don't really get angry. I kind of laugh at that. I'm just going to be honest. Life brings angry situations to us. And we all carry our anger in different ways, but anger is part of the human condition. You know, a couple years ago, actually almost 20 years ago, I remember getting into the most glorious argument of my entire life with my little sister. And we were in a public restaurant. We have dramatically different views on life and faith and God and religion. And we were having one of those clenched teeth arguments where we look at each other and we're just, you are wrong and I am forever right. That's how we were having our argument. And it was different than your typical sibling tiff. It was a deep-rooted argument. And we were making a scene. We thought we were being calm through gritted teeth in a public restaurant. And we had vowed we're just never going to speak to each other again. This is just beyond what we can handle. And I just, I remember just seething with anger and my sister seething with anger and why neither of us had the audacity or the, the thought process, I should say, of just throwing our cash down on the table to cover our meal and leaving. I don't know. It was God's good grace. And it was God's good grace that it took the waiter forever to bring the bill for our meal. We sat there glaring at each other, but it gave us enough time to let the anger begin to subside. And we began to cry. I can't say that we decided we were going to see eye to eye and that everything was going to be perfect, but we left still talking to this day. I love my sister. We're still talking. What does it look like to let anger become grace? Most of us know how good it feels to literally slam a door shut. Have any of you argued to a point where you walked out of a house or an office or something and you slammed the door, right? And the wall kind of rattles a bit. And just for a nanosecond, you're like, oh, it felt good to slam the door, right? This is the anger that moves through some of our lives. Joseph is a glimpse of this. He is the glimpse 
of anger and God's movement and invitation to us through anger. Most of the fractured and broken relationships we face come because there is anger somewhere. Some of us have been injured and wronged in horrible, terrible, terrorizing ways. And some of us just had an argument along the way and just never patched it up. I don't know what it is for you, but wherever there is a place for you to consider whether or not your anger can move to grace, I suggest to us all that this is how the doors begin to open. This is how the door of heaven opens. In, in the Garden of Eden, Adam, God didn't look down and say, ah, it's no big deal. You know, there's, there's, there's a term we use called the wrath of God, the anger of God, the frustration God has at injustice and sin and deceit and treachery. Yet God turns it to grace through Jesus. As we all know, the story moves on and Mary gives birth to this baby. And she is told to name him Jesus, Messiah. And we're told that he will save us from our sins. And what they expected, as some of us recall, is a political savior, somebody who was going to overthrow Roman oppression, somebody who was going to save them from injustice. But scripture doesn't say that Jesus came to save them, save us from other people. Scripture tells us that God came, Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. The opening of a door begins with us admitting our shortcomings, our anger, our shortfalls, whatever it may be. The name Emmanuel, God with us, He will be your savior. He is God with you means that Jesus is with it in us as we try to figure out how to let God save us from our sins and our darkness. He is with us in it. He cries with us. He weeps with us. He mourns with us. He feels what we feel. You know, personally, my gut often says when I look at a situation Save me from those people. (laughs) Where Roman oppression was what they were wanting to be saved from, we can say, well, that person did me wrong. I will say to you, sometimes I sit in church with my husband, a wonderful man named Joel, and I will listen to a sermon, and I will think to myself, I'm really glad he's here to hear this, because he needs to fix a few things so that we can have... A better marriage, you know, and he's sitting there thinking the same thing, right? My wife really needs to hear this, you know, I mean, how many of us do that, right? God didn't come to save us from other people. He came to save us from ourselves, from our sin. And yes, part of salvation is, is rescuing the whole world from injustice and terror and all of those tragic things. But it starts with us recognizing where we need to begin to open a door and move away from anger and into 
grace. In the incarnation, God with us, Emmanuel, is the beauty of Jesus with us in it. God didn't try to orchestrate it all with levers and buttons and magic from heaven. He sent Jesus, he sent a baby to come down and do it with us. Kathleen Norris says the incarnation is where hope contends with fear. Not an antique doctrine at all, but reality. God with us, in it, working it out with us. So why is this so complicated? Sounds good, right? Let's turn my anger into grace and then we'll all have a pretty Christmas. It's not that simple. When we get scared and we wonder if we reach out, will we be met? And it's hard to reach out when we still think we were right. But if we don't make a decision to crack open some doors that have been closed, we miss out. We trudge along heavy. We let anger run our lives. We miss out on fully living into God's hope for our lives. We cause other people around us to miss out on relationships. My mom and her brother didn't speak for 25 years. I have cousins I've never met. My mom has some good reasons, but anger ruled that situation. And as a family, we missed out on a whole lot. What does it look like to turn anger into grace? There's a pastor in Ontario, Canada, a gentleman named Tim Chalise. He's a pastor there, and he's also a pretty, a pretty active blogger and writer, ministry leader. He's got um, quite a following. And this past May, he got pretty upset with a woman named Anne Voskamp. Anne Voskamp is the New York Times best-selling author of a book called 1,000 Gifts. Voskamp also lives in Ontario, and she is also a blogger and writer. She's got six children. She's a farmer. And they had a little bit of a difference of opinion. And Tim suggested that her writing is dangerous and that her theology is shaky at best. And he went as far as to suggest she might be a pantheist and not entirely what he thought would be theologically accurate. And he posted a blog that was scathing toward Voskamp. And as expected, Twitter and Facebook and all the other social media outlets began arguing back and forth about who was right. Voskamp had her fans and Chalice had his fans. And here's the interesting thing. And Voskamp didn't say a word about it. She simply called up Tim and invited him over for dinner. And there's part of me that would want to blog back and argue back and say, oh, yeah, well, what about this? She didn't do that. She invited the man over for dinner. And to both of their credits, they had a lovely meal together, after which he took the bold, courageous move to go and publicly apologize to her and to admit that perhaps he'd gotten it wrong. And how beautiful in the Christian community to model grace instead of anger. Jesus does this, right? He models grace over and over and over again. I mean, think of his disciples. 
This group of 12 clumsy people who consistently got it wrong, who Jesus would invite into moments and they would trip over themselves. They're consistently shown arguing among one another about who's the greatest. I'm sure Jesus was like, oh, you know, (laughs) but he let them live in his grace and he used them to change the trajectory of the world. So many stories from the life of Jesus exhibit this same anger that turned into grace. In my own life, this Christmas, I I see this exact conversation playing out through a Christmas card. I've sent a lot of cards out. I still have that token stack many of us have with the addresses that we can't remember and the people we know moved and we don't know where they live. And so I have that stack sitting there and I have this one card left that is unaddressed. And there is a woman I need to write a letter to to slide inside of this card. You'll notice I've already sealed the envelope. Requires me opening this back up and actually doing this thing. Some of you may know that while I'm not here at Christ Church, I... I have the privilege of speaking to uh, moms and women about friendship and about motherhood. And I had a woman this past year who just refused to ever talk to me again. Someone I've known for 20 years who read some of the work that I've created on friendship and decided that I wasn't that kind of friend. And I have called her and I have emailed her and I have reached out and tried to make it right And she hasn't received any of it. And you know what I have? I have a list in my head of all the reasons why I'm right. What I want to say is, well, what did you expect from me? When you act that way, of course I'm going to act this way. And you can't have expectations of me that are unrealistic. And when you say this, well, of course I'm going to do this. And I want to show her all the ways that she wasn't a good friend to me. But does that help? No. And so what I'm going to do is write a letter wishing her peace and hope and joy. And it's hard because she may not even open the card. She may open it and laugh. And I fully expect still to never hear from her again. But I feel like my job as a person who loves Jesus and is trying to find her way is to open the door just a bit. You know, when we open the door, there's no guarantee someone's going to open it back. And when you go on a vacation and you've got adjoining rooms, what happens, right? You tear in the room and you open one adjoining door. You think you're going to just see the next room, but what do you see? You see the other door. The other side has to open their door too. And there's no guarantee. I mean, now I actually really have to send this card because I just made a public statement about it. So hold me to it. But who do you need to send a card to? Maybe a card seems too trite. Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe you need to do a drive by someone's house and stop by. Maybe you need to spend a couple more years praying, praying for the strength to turn anger into grace. I don't know what it is for each of you, but I'm willing to bet there's at least one person in each of our lives where our anger could slide over to grace and we could begin to exhibit Jesus to others. The door of heaven, my friends, has opened to us. And our invitation as Christ followers is to do the same for others. When I was growing up, I used to sleep outside of my room at the top of the stairs in my house. My mom would leave my bedroom door open a crack, 
and the light of the kitchen. I always, I always made her leave the kitchen light on, would wash up the stairs. And I liked to lay, I would lay half in the hallway, half in my room because I liked to lay in the light of the kitchen. And I liked to listen to my mom and dad who were usually laughing at something on TV. And I would fall asleep like that. And my mom would eventually always put me obviously back into my bed. And in my own house, we have this sort of policy we live by, no closed doors in our house. You don't, you don't get to play behind closed doors. And at night, our doors are open. And when there's sound and noise in the house, I close the door to the room for my children, but I don't close it all the way. I leave it open a crack. So that if something goes bump in the night and fear and anger become somehow part of the experience of my children, the door's open and they can very easily and very quickly rip the door open and find us. That's what God does for us. Leaves the door of heaven open a crack so that we can find him when things go bump in the night and is what he is calling us to do as well. Revelation 3, 20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Leave the door open, my friends. Jesus says in John 14, and I close with this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Anger to grace. So that we may live in peace with one another this Christmas and beyond. Amen? Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for the joy of knowing you can turn our darkest days into your brightest moments. Help us move as clumsily and as messy as it may be toward one another in grace rather than anger. Let us live fully into that reality for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.